My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shadow. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. We truly believe in the power of fashion to present a pro-social message of inclusivity and positive identity. How's that for a vision statement? (laughs) Those are the words of Catherine Tatum and Rob Jones, the London-based design duo behind Tatum Jones. So they're former Woolmark Prize winners, and they're currently the British Library's designers in residence. Who knew that was an actual thing? I'm quite jealous. As if that wasn't enough, this year the British Fashion Council named them positive fashion representatives. Again, did you know that was something? Brilliant, huh? So for Spring 19, Tatum Jones partnered with YouTube, Google and the BFC in support of the United Nations Women. They called the collection Global Womanhood Part 2, 16 Days of Activism. So there was a Part 1, which was the season before. And you're going to hear how they approach the seasons and how they like this idea of continuity, which I love. So instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater every season and saying that previous stuff was obsolete, they're saying, no, actually, this is a continuous conversation. Instead of a runway show, they held a roundtable discussion, which they filmed, and check the show notes and we'll share a link. But the idea was to get a bunch of really inspiring women and female activists around the table and talk about fashion's responsibility and its role when it comes to the protection, inclusion and equality of women. I mean, hello, how rad is that? It's really inspiring. I hope you'll check it out. But Tatum Jones are always pushing the boundaries like this. Previous collections have explored issues like the body and how fashion approaches disability. And we talk quite a bit about this one. You'll hear them mention three models from previous London Fashion Week shows. One of them, Natasha Baker, is a Paralympic dressage rider who's won 11 gold medals. And two more are amputees, Kelly Knox and Jack Ayres. And Jack was actually the first disabled male model to walk in New York Fashion Week. And it wasn't very long ago. It was only 2015. 
So thought-provoking. This discussion really makes you think about where we're at in terms of the fashion landscape and inclusivity and also shows how far we have to go. I met Kat and Rob during Milan Fashion Week and I just loved them. They were in town because they were nominated for the Green Carpet Awards Best Emerging Designer. They didn't win, but they're most certainly winners to me. Now, dear listener, I've got something to ask you. Do you value this podcast? Do you want it to continue? Do you get something out of it? Whether you're a regular listener or a new one, have you learned things or been inspired by these conversations? Now, if the answer is yes, I would love you to support my crowdfunding campaign on Possible to raise the funds I need to make Series 3. The plan is to kick that off in February. But if I don't hit my target, no more podcast. I know, that would be so sad, right? Look, sustainability and transparency are constant themes on this show, as you probably know. But I think it's time I turn them on myself. And to be totally honest with you, if everyone chips in a little bit, then I can keep doing this. But if not, I really can't. I work for free to make this podcast. It takes about two days of my week. And I'm okay with that because it's my passion. But it's not sustainable for me to keep paying production costs out of my own pocket in order to make content which I don't charge for. Now, I'm not asking to make a profit, and I am committed to keeping this content freely available to everyone, especially my beloved fashion students. But in order to do that, I need to raise some money to pay my editor each week, and for things like music licences, hosting fees. If you can help, I'd be over the moon. For as little as 10 bucks, which includes a donation I'm going to make to Fashion Revolution, you can be part of it. The link is on my Instagram, find me at Mrs Press, or go straight to Possible. Now, the website address is possible.com, P-O-Z-I-B-L-E, forward slash project, forward slash wardrobe, and then hyphens in between all the words, wardrobe crisis, podcast series three, and three is in numerals. It's really all I want for Christmas. I want to say all I want for Christmas is you. I should say all I want for Christmas is your money. (laughs) All right. But for now, let's hang out with Catherine and Rob. I think you're going to really enjoy this one. It's like with food, food used to be, you'd have like a special meal on a, so a special meal on a Sunday and then those left, you know, kind of things ran through the week, mm. but then we've got into this kind of mass buying, just buying, buying, buying stuff, stuff you don't need and then throwing it away and fashion, it's happened to fashion, it's happened to food, lots of different things. And, but I think now we're starting to look at that and as designers, we're starting to look at that and, and open your eyes at stuff that we've had for a few years and actually going that's not a it's not a bad thing waste isn't a bad thing it can be something that's beautiful and reused you just need to look at it afresh but it's also the yeah the idea that you would make things last i think has been absent in fashion for such a long time and it's and it, there's a generational difference uh, in point of view on this and i remember when ed my other half sat down and he had a comb to get rid of the the piles on his cashmere jumper. And actually really hard to get those combs. I used to have one and I don't have it now. Yeah. And I wish I had it. I was so amazed that he was doing this and we were kind yeah. of sat in bed probably on a Friday night. And he sat there combing his jumper and it was one of the reasons I fell in love with him. I was like, that's genius. That's brilliant that you're doing that. Um, because traditionally that's you would have mended, yeah. you would have obviously cared for cashmere, but now you yeah. can buy cashmere and bloody the supermarket for 25 yeah. bucks. Exactly. Yeah. You throw it away when it's a bit peeled and it peels because it's short fibres because it's cheaply made, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. There's all kind of different, various different factoring impacts that on that. But that thing about respecting and mm. protecting and looking after mm. fabrics and clothing is mm. actually very beautiful and sentimental, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's. I think for us, it's really naturally and organically come back in to the kind of forefront of our like operations in a way because essentially we're a brand that creates fashion from human stories so humans are part of the research so we talk to people and we interview people as part of the research for our creative inspiration so to leave that behind and shut that kind of human research out at the point that creativity is kind of you know, exercised in designing a collection would be odd. Mm. So it tends to run through everything we think about from the actual creative to how we manage our team to how we kind of encourage people within our team to communicate with each other. Um, It kind of runs through everything, but it's happened almost subconsciously. We talk a lot about stories and it becomes a cliche. Every meeting I ever turn up to, you have a brand saying storytelling is key. But you have got a really authentic take on what stories mean. I wrote this down from your website because I love it. I guess it's like a kind of mission statement, but I'm going to read it out for everyone. We truly believe in the power of fashion to represent a pro-social message of inclusivity and positive identity. We believe in creating socially conscious fashion that puts the craftspeople and the customer at the heart of our creation. And you just mentioned that you talk about creating fashion from human stories. It's gorgeous. I mean, words to me are really powerful, but I I wish everyone thought like that about how they make stuff. Talk to us a little bit about that mission statement. Well, Catherine and I just seem to be aligned by people that we're inspired by. And what we've realised is, whether they're historic figures or people that are living, they've generally done something that's very powerful in their life and use their life for something. So it kind of one season we found a lady called Lima Goey and she was a peace activist in Liberia and she brought down the dictator with a women's movement and you'd seen a small snippet on this documentary which was actually about Hillary Clinton she was a small part of it and then I started reading you introduced her to me I started reading Mm. about her we read her biography and we were like this woman is phenomenal like phenomenal woman why don't we write to her let's just give it a go like we're reading about her and we can do this kind of very first level research but we're very much about primary source research so we did and she skyped with us and called us and we met her and from that it was so much more enriching that kind of that inspiration and development and then that really from that point on we were like this is what we want to do this is what we want to do it's It's really getting into the psyche of I guess these these people these movements of people these groups of people um these humans they're our muses be it kind of philosophically as a group, if there's a movement and they have a belief system um, or a cultural practice, that becomes our muse for the season. That's what we want to, we want to get under the layers of that psyche and understand why, what drives that person or that group, what makes them tick and what makes them push forward in times of challenge or times of strife. Um, And that just really interests us. It's quite political though, looking at fashion as culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, think. I mean, we're you can't separate the two. You can't separate humans from their their sense of self identity, and clothing has such an incredible impact on our sense of self identity. As does where you were born. As does who brought you up. As does the music you listen to. As does the art that you were exposed to. And textiles is a massive part of our brand. So we obviously 
we do look at things and go, God, that's just stunningly beautiful and appreciate it for on an aesthetic level. But there's a deeper meaning mm. and satisfaction from creating something, mm. creating a textile that's beautiful and knowing that it's been inspired by, say, three words that have come from a conversation you've had with someone that's led a peace movement in Liberia yeah. and brought down a dictator. Incredible. Um, and that's also what's interesting is each of the inspirations or the people that we've looked at have always been very interested in fashion as a space for their story to be told. Mm. A lot of people sometimes ask us, like, so how's the link? How do they feel? But they're very much interested because I think it's such a force, fashion, such a global force, and has such a responsibility, and it, and it affects all people, that they're very interested. Like with Natasha Baker, who's the mm. Paralympian that we based the collection on, she was very much like, I'm really up for having this story mm. pushed into this mm. arena because she says, I feel like it isn't mm. pushed into it. And... What we've started to do because of the depth of research that we go to and the development of our fabrics and, and all the kind of the work that goes into it, we've started is changing it from this seasonal six months. We are having like the two, three collections a year, but the theme and the inspiration, the concept we're carrying on, we're mm. kind of doing part one, part two. Mm. So there's a, there's a linear through all the movements. It's not kind of shutting off yeah. in September going, right, what's next? And I think that's happening generally in the industry. I think this the kind of the trend thing is it's people are mixing well, it's things up. It's unsustainable. If you yeah, talk about just, sustainability, yeah. incredible churning out of collections. You're a tank that has like fuel and and you don't get anything of substance or I think... You're just on of, the hamster wheel. You're, just, yeah. you're doing it for the... You're ticking new, new, your box. New. Yeah. And also there's... I really believe in this angle that you have to, as a designer, you have to experience satisfaction. If you're lacking in satisfaction from your own design process, it will show. The soul will escape from your kind of output and it will show and it will be obvious. Mm. Um, and so you have to... I think there's a responsibility for designers to protect that space. We actually have a two-week period where we have an out-of-office on each season and everyone's like, how do you do that? But we we just basically protect two weeks of... It's when we're usually interviewing, so we're doing research and we're collating the music and we're creating a kind of world in our studio and emails can wait and we just get back to people later. The world's um, not going to stop, but we don't believe that. We're, I mean, I'm always panicking. Oh, God, the phone's run out of juice. How can I survive? What if I can't... <laughs> yeah. What if someone messages me? Yeah. What if? I've started matter, to leave. <laughs> like this morning we went to breakfast. I was like, I don't need my phone. I'm going to be eating. I think it's I want to look at my food and enjoy it. I'll leave my phone in the room. Because you don't... What? What's the worst that's going to happen? Nothing. Someone's going to have to wait maybe an hour for you to respond. Well, that'll improve their patience. Level. I think as well. We, <laughs> we, we also wanted, and I think it was when we started with um, The Body Part 1, and we started... It was a wind season, so we started in... October, November, talking to Paralympians in the beginning and about their relationship with fashion. Mm. Autumn, winter, 17. Yes, autumn, yeah. 17. And we came away, we had one week where we'd kind of had six or seven different long interviews. Great interviews, but we kind of came away from it that we wanted to educate ourselves more mm. and that we didn't want to be commenting on behalf of mm. a group of people mm -hmm. without really understanding and also having their backing really that that they were involved in it and it felt like we can't just turn this around for a show in february that doesn't feel right Which so is, let's take more time so let's just take Amazing. more time we're still we'll still show a collection but it will be an introduction 
to what we're doing and and it will be based on the conversation we've had but actually we're going to keep having these conversations yeah. and then we decided to focus we really clicked with Natasha and that's then through that period it grew to September so it is a part one and part two but why not and yet because we don't generally do it that way I'm going wow <laughs> you know because it's just so yeah. unusual but actually, you're in control of what you do. Yeah, we totally of course took you that back. To, you do have to think about selling seasons. Yeah, yeah. But you actually can frame what you do in the way that you want to. Maybe we should all just it. rethink yeah. it. Deciding what we you just, want. Well, we decided to basically take that back into our own sort of decision-making and just say, we're going to do Fashion Week, but what we're not going to do is almost pay a quite disrespectful mm. homage to this subject that we're looking at by shutting it down after, you know, and essentially it's like... Yeah, disability dance now. Yeah, yeah. Right. Just just, that's right not us us. as people either. We're going to get onto what you just did at London Fashion Week, but just to talk more about the body, fascinating. I thought it was really just an interesting concept, but also it's an area that we neglect, isn't it? Um, mm. On the runway for Autumn Winter, you had two, did you have two? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kelly Knox and so, Jack Ayers. Right, so Kelly was born without part of her arm, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Jack's... Jack had was, Jack had a virus um, and it, I think do, an infection. He was the youngest. He was sixteen, so it was one. It was a. He had to make a decision a to keep case, it. And it, his parents couldn't decide. He had to decide whether he wanted to or to not. Lose his leg. He was only sixteen, but it was. <gasps> um, God. And he said he'd rather live a he'd full life live without, without it. it. And imagine at that age having to make that decision. Yeah, but, but he's you, now Mister. Mr. England, is he? Yeah. Is he? he was gorgeous the first, man. I've looked at him, he is. Oh. and he was the first <laughs> model with a disability to walk in New York ever. Apparently. Yeah, he yeah. was. He was actually. Um, I think he maybe had been cast the season before we cast him, but they ended up backing out and not choosing him. Um, and I'm so glad we met him because he's such a brilliant character. And what I have to say about those two is that neither of them when you meet them when they talk about um things that are difficult in their life or anything that's like a general it's not the physical it's never (gasps) the physical and how we perceive that it must be completely it's yeah it's completely society's projection upon them right i mean kelly has a three-year-old um a very active little boy and she manages to carry the shopping carry the buggy and carry her child upstairs to get back to her apartment this is the outside world projecting onto her. She hasn't got a problem with it. Her her struggles are elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. And your collection was that collection was particularly about drawing attention to this idea of how we perceive perfection physically and yeah. questioning that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was when we started actually it was a conversation that started around textiles and the appreciation of beautiful fabrics. We were like, how odd that someone with a seated disability and someone without a seated disability, how odd that we would presume that they wouldn't appreciate high-end textiles. We were just like, that's just so bizarre. So when we started to talk to the Paralympians, and and in particular Natasha, who's a massive fashion fan, she just loves, Natasha loves everything glitzy she actually her aesthetic is actually quite different to Tate and Jones which was a really lovely dynamic but but her it's pink she yeah, loves she pink loves there pink. was so much but she radiates pink like yeah, she like she's, shocking fusioning <laughs> like she's yeah she's like this the energy and bundle and positivity of her really hit the collection I think the, the probably, guys that filmed the film and and when we interviewed her recorded all of our conversations and created that the layers of the conversations over the music were 
they had anticipated we'd have this this element of melancholy mm. because it's it's quite a devastating story how her parents found her when she was a toddler and and, and then just they basically found her in her cot completely lifeless at 14 months she was a ragdoll she couldn't even cry she could just blink and at that age you can barely communicate anyway i mean there's you have very few words at 14 months but she knew something was wrong and then gradually they understood that she had a disease called transverse mellitus which affected the nerve system and, and essentially Yeah, there was nothing that could be done. And so there was this anticipation that there would be a kind of energy, a melancholy Mm -hmm. energy. Didn't get any of that. No, radiating pink. (laughs) Yeah, she just, like, she's constantly happy. The the only, and this is what was a big part of the inspiration of the collection, wasn't about her disability. The melancholy came from her relationship with with the horse and and she lost her main horse, JP, She'd lost uh, through our kind of interviews, hadn't she? Yeah. And that's who she'd won her 12 medals on. And the relationship... And she talked about... She was told that the horse, when she pitched JP, and because she whispers to the horse, it's very much they have to connect. But the kind of... The society of dress... Like, the people... That's right. She was told said, JP wasn't good enough. Not the right horse for you. It, you'll never win on him. And she mm-hmm. was like, I feel that I would. And as Natasha, as we got to know her, she's like, I... Yeah, I, I leave my own path. She went, nope. We're going to him, we're going to win. And they're like, you never will. He, he's not the right horse. He hasn't got, like, the concentration. And then she won 12 medals on him. But then he, he, he got lame and lost away. So her melancholy, the rawness and everything, came from that relationship. So a lot of the collection was really based on the relationship with her and the mm. horse kind of thing. And, God, and what that gives her. And she said, I, she, cause I can't, she said, I'm lifeless from the waist down and I can't run. I can't... Useless, Useless, said. she said. Yeah, I can't run, I can't dance. I, but when I'm on, a I'm on this, like, three-quarter ton beast, I can do all those things. And and, and I, but they both, you can see they both, the relationship is really quite special. And just coming back to fashion particularly and the way that we as an industry focus on one expected norm or ideal of beauty... Mm. I mean, you don't really... You, Amy Mullins is a good example of someone who was celebrated on the runway by McQueen. Mm. So she was an amputee and she was celebrated for her incredible beauty and the difference was part of her beauty and that was wonderful. But then I can't really think of other examples of that. There mm. could be some, but they don't loom large. I wonder why it is that we're so fixated on this one kind of ideal of what is acceptable. And it isn't just about disability, it's about race, it's about skinniness, it's about... Just this kind of identical thing, isn't it? It still looms I d- larger. I, I don't know. I don't know why we kind of fell into it. This was a massive part of the discussion at the round table um, for spring summer nineteen, but it did. There did become this kind of very small, homogenised look aesthetic. Um, and when there's a repet- in bro- broadly in fashion, yeah, broadly in fashion, white, blonde, incredibly thin. And when you repetitively put that out, and so all different facets of the fashion industry are accountable for this. Um, And that's one thing that came up on the roundtable, as there were journalists sat there, as there were models sat there, as there were politicians, um, you know, people that were kind of speaking about these things in Parliament sat there, as designers sat there, and as other kind of spokespeople sat there we all have to be accountable Mm. so when this is repetitively put out to you and you're mirrored with this one singular homogenized aesthetic 
you base all of your self-esteem on that. So you're you're basing your do I do I reflect that? And if you don't, that it kind of develops this aspiration to look like that. And it's about shifting the center. And it's not about Mara I Larassi put this really beautifully. It's not about adding into that. It's not about getting a black woman and putting that into it. And as she said quite brilliantly, stir. It's I not know. about She's getting amazing. an Asian woman. It's not stir. about getting a disability, uh, someone with a disability and putting it into it and stir. It's about shifting the centre and it's about re repurposing, in a way, that kind of idea of there being a norm so that this norm isn't this one homogenised aesthetic. Okay, so you mentioned your round table. The spring, summer 19, instead of having a runway show, you held an event, a digitally disseminated event that was called Round Table, Not Runway. Yeah. Extraordinary. Can you tell us about the concept and who was at your table? So we um, were introduced to uh, Claire from the UN Women mm-hmm. Organisation. And we it was just a discussion and we wanted to start looking at how we could work together and from that, she introduced us to their programme, 16 Days of Activism, which really kind of resonated with us. And we realised from our previous season... But so that, that's about empowering women to stand yes. up against violence towards yes. women and girls, yes. right? The, yeah, yeah, the whole campaign is basically protection for women and girls against violence, essentially. And from our part one of Global Womanhood, we'd already met Mara Ayala-Rassi, who is, runs an organisation called IMCON that protects women of colour against violence. And... We also had Anne Marie, who was part of Anne Marie Sanguini. She was part of um, Sisters Uncut. You could quite a front line activist yeah. group, and so we were like we started talking to them, and we wanted, but they were quite they're about them personally for uh, autumn winter eighteen. So we wanted to carry on that conversation, but actually ask about their work and what they do, and get get in depth like inside information about exactly what they do and actually what they need, kind of thing. I'm just going to pause you there just to say to listeners who might not be aware Mm. of the amazing work that Mariah does, um, you may have seen her because she was one of the eight activists that was brought to the Golden Globes and she came with Emma Watson and she is a London-based black feminist activist and advocate and these stories are not as elevated as they should be in broader culture Mm. but I think Emma Watson did a good job by saying let's all put our eyes on this. Yeah. Um, So we sat down with those women and we've talked to some more, more women and so that... From that research, we realised that we're talking about their work and the fashion industry, but the, the two are not connecting necessarily. So we thought, well, we have a space and a privilege where we can do that. We can bring these things together, these people together. So that got us thinking, well, let's have a round table. Um, Instead of a runway, but, who does that? <laughs> and it didn't feel right also to... Take some just, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it didn't feel right as well to... With a fashion show, the most we could do, because people's attention spans, is do like a one-minute, two-minute film at the beginning. And we were, from our conversations, there was so much discussion and conversation. We were like, that, editing it down to a minute and then having these girls walk down the runway just didn't feel right. But you didn't get everyone at the round table to sit there wearing your collection. No, we didn't. You actually that... just completely reinvented it. You said, OK, well, we're going to have a, instead of a fashion show, we're going to present our collection through ideas. And discussion it's amazing yeah yeah that's... it wasn't they weren't you've got to remember these women are serious brains and minds and none of them are clothes horses and we're, it's not about getting them sat there decked out in the archive of tate and jones it's about extracting their ideas and it's about having a, an intelligent conversation that's incredibly relevant in the industry at the moment 
the inspiration for us has happened. We've created the collection. So we thought it was far more fascinating to just get them all together. Let's have, let's bring these people from these kind of organisations that are doing incredible on the ground work with people that are involved in the fashion industry and representatives from the fashion industry so, with yeah. with people that are involved in the digital industry. Um, Google, YouTube are represented there. And let's British actually, Fashion Council. Yeah, and let's actually, let's have a discussion that will be productive, that will raise some important points, that can create a legacy that will probably transform over to autumn, winter 19, and do something that's actually use our space in a way that's useful. We've both always felt really privileged, the fact that we have a platform in London Fashion Week. Mm. We don't take that for granted. Mm. We never have done. And it just felt that this season was the right... It was the right time and it was the right environment to do a roundtable, not a runway. I loved what Karen Franklin said, and we'll share some links so you can watch this. But she's an extraordinary person, one of the best, I reckon. Amazing. A fashion revolutionary and a journalist of great repute. But she said, we're gathered here today to talk about the power and magic of fashion, but also the responsibilities it has. I, I For me, that really, when we were working with Karen to chair the, the roundtable when we came up with that with her and she said that it was we didn't we don't want to take away from the magic and the drama and the dreams of fashion because it is it is like we're not too serious people no, either. We no, don't, we're like, not sat in our studio like, kind of very sort of well brows <laughs> frowned and we're if you actually came into our environment it's fun it's constantly laughing when i was stalking you i found an id interview that you did which said that rob <laughs> was the one with a sense of humor and you, Kat, <laughs> yes. wear the cerebral one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's the case. Not I think, all the time. I think people get that from the outside, but I think that... We both. I mean, when it's like... But <laughs> well, I also know that you met in Italy when you were working for a menswear label and you spent yeah. the whole time laughing. Yeah, we did. That is how it happened. Yeah, we did. That's how basically so it came we, about. And that's we were it. like, this is, this is hard work and this is serious enough as it is in terms of just like the amount of deadlines we had, the amount of work we had to get done. And the two of us were just cracking up the whole time and laughing at the situation. Like, if we can do this, but we're also getting our deadlines, meeting our deadlines, we're getting the collections designed. Oh, and they happen to be some of the best-selling collections that this company has ever had. I think we can do this for ourselves. You, you can work hard and enjoy yourself. Yeah. You can. It is possible. Put it this way, we're not tortured artists. Yeah, and, it's, and it can be stressful, but there are stresses. But it doesn't mean you have to live a stressful life. He doesn't... Our studio is fun and you get so much more out of a team yeah. if they're enjoying it. Yeah. Absolutely. And well, that's part of responsibility. Yeah. Okay, that's part yeah. of personal responsibility, not the broader supply chain fashion industry responsibility. But I think as anyone who runs a business, you have a responsibility to make an atmosphere that allows people to thrive yeah. and isn't horrible. Yeah. But I think we'd both worked in both environments. Well, we particularly both... fashion where everyone's mean. Yeah, but in that, nice. in that kind of, <laughs> I, know, I think, I, dated idea of yeah. what a fashion brand is that kind of um everyone's really stressed and flapping paper and, and if you're not you're not and if you're not working until 10 o'clock at light it means you're not working hard enough and I'm sorry but it's bullshit and it's dated and we never wanted to run a company like that and thought we just wanted a team that was excited it's going to be long hours whatever we do because we're working on fashion week collections so we wanted a team that was excited to come into work as as excited as the two of us were 
coming in on a Saturday mm. and going, brilliant, okay, we know we've got to get done today, but we're going to have a laugh. Well, I'd rather be there than miss out. Yeah. yeah. Because, because we're doing yeah. exciting things. And we were like, it's not, for us, we just, you know, that was just something we were really passionate about creating. And, and not taking away from the magic of fashion, but then realising with what we were looking at and the research that there is a responsibility and that it does affect a lot of people. And also having young people in our lives, girls especially, growing up and seeing the effects that kind of media has on them and fashion mm. has on them and the pressures they put on themselves and kind of going, it doesn't need to be like that. Yeah. And actually, we, as Cathy said, feel privileged that we show in on Fashion Week. So why not use that space to bring conversation? And the response to that, if, if you watch the round table, is people like Monroe saying that she's like, one thing that made me realise our privilege was that she said, I can be talking about like transphobia till I'm kind of like blue in the face and it might not cut through, but if you bring yeah, it to the table, yeah. a different audience will listen to it. And she's when like, she said, I, I need, she goes, I can't do this all by myself. I need your help. And you two have willingly created a space to have this conversation. And, and that really resonated with us. I was like, well, you're doing brilliantly. I don't know if you need anyone's help, but what? But everyone needs everyone's yeah, help. Yeah, and what she's saying is, yeah. is that we can all pull up these people that are, you know, that suffer from these various different kind of the impacts of image, you know, image kind of crisis and kind of body crisis, and we can all together pull those people up, um, and we should do. Do you think that you're fashion activists? Possibly. I think some from the outside would say. I think Karen said it to us once but we're just doing what we what, do but what she what i think what karen highlighted is that we met we met karen probably about a year and a half ago mm. and i feel like she's in fact every I, I there's been a couple of moments over the last like month where we've had like stressful situations because of fashion week and the first person i've thought of is karen i thought how would she respond in a situation like this because she's so dignified and she's so calm and kind, yet driven, and clearly focused. I'm going to get Karen on this podcast and call it What Would Karen Do? Have you ever mm. seen that book called What Would Audrey Do? Yeah. Which is yes. basically like how to be elegant. Absolutely. Like, like, yeah. like, yeah. I will have What she, Would Karen yeah. Franklin Do? She, she, um, I have done because I've just thought she's kind of, she she embodies so many qualities that I think is a, just a good, decent person. And she said, what you're doing is instinctive. You don't necessarily, you haven't necessarily labelled yourselves as activists mm. or campaigners. She said, because you almost haven't realised that there's a label to it because it's just instinctive in the pair of you. And I think she's highlighted that to us um, very recently and, and perhaps people would refer to us in that way, but it's not something we would yeah. call ourselves. Yeah. I call myself a fashion activist on Instagram. <laughs> Deal with it. Good for you. Um, <laughs> The BFC got behind the way that you put forward this vision for mm. Spring 19 and actually named you... Positive Fashion. <laughs> yeah, Positive Fashion Representatives. It's their their initiative that they launched, Caroline Rush launched um, earlier on this year. And it's something that has... It basically has five pillars. I can't name, name exactly how they've described each of those pillars. But they want to talk about and promote positively all of the things that we've been talking about um, and kind of discussing and creatively outputting 
since we started. It feels like a good time of momentum and change. Um, Claudia Croft, who is now working for Ten Magazine, she's mentioned, I've forgotten the exact words, but she was talking about the idea that a lot of people had turned away from fashion mm. because of this perception that it was just really outdated and mm-hmm. that its modes, I mean, you mentioned, you know, those old cliches of how a fashion business runs, yeah. but those modes yeah. seem increasingly unrelatable and kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But I feel like we're on the cusp of change. What do you think? I do. I think it's exciting. I think we've laughed at that old, outdated idea of fashion for a very long but time. The devil wears Prada. Exactly. Kind of but of... I think it's because we were we were in the education system around that time, and then the first, well, actually, only one of the companies that the two of us worked for was a real epitome of right. that. And when we both came out of it, as we were saying earlier, we're like that's ridiculous. You just don't have to. Fashion is so should be so positive it enables you to kind of rise up we looked at each other and how we we've been treated really well oh same i've treated, met some of the most amazing people in this industry and then mm. we were like well what just personally that the person we worked for that treated us really well you get so much more because yeah. you will if the right per- the right meetings of mine something you will Go that extra mile because you want to, because you're doing it for them. People want to And be then valued. if you don't, you shut down. And if it's just through fear, and that's what we realised with our team, I don't mm. want somebody petrified to come mm. into the studio, too scared to ask me anything, and stood outside not wanting to come in. Because that is not productive. But you get that, you, you connect to that person and you give them a space to be themselves. They will just give you everything. You're obviously... Um working hard to make a beautiful environment for your team to work in but can we talk about production how do you make things where do you make them and do you extend that thinking to the people further down your supply chain you make everything in the uk our knitwear is uh, we work with john smedley i love john smedley and john smedley it's a venerable british institution knitwear institution but their their sustainability Mission yeah. statements and how and how they their staff are treated. My mum used to have a shop and sell it. I've still oh, well, got okay. the jumpers. Yep. You should go to the. <laughs> That's uh, from the new collection out there. <laughs> oh, John Smedley. I mean, lovely fibre, isn't it? Yeah. It's gorgeous. The Smedley uh, discount, the, the little store on the side of the factory they have Ooh, where they give yeah. all that, sell the samples is amazing because <laughs> you can get it. Secrets we shared. Yeah, secret. yes, definitely yeah, worth it's really taking a trip to Crawford yeah. for bargain. Um, so, do they make everything in Britain too? Yeah. 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 So everything and and. Not yeah. many, there's not many factory. left of those establishments no. there. It's brilliant. And the transparency and how they do it is very open. Um, their sustainability kind of agenda is brilliant as well. Like the the saving of water resources. Um, they, In fact, that's where we got the idea from. They mm-hmm. unravel yarn. They recycle. Really? Um, they have yeah. a machine, they have that, a machine that unravels it. We had to unravel it by hand. But it, but it puts it back on cones like, yeah. within seconds. So and no, that's where we thought, we genius, we've got loads of samples that we could do that too so they do our knitwear we make everything in london we work with mills in the uk france France and italy so we're very clear on their ethics and how they're working so we're lucky in that way that we've kept it quite local so that there is a transparency Mm. to what to what we're doing we Mm. worked with for the green carpet challenge we worked with uh, a company called peace and co and they're a new agency that links you with craftspeople around the world. So you get like a normal fabric agency, you get like swatches and ideas. And we pick them, you pick the ones you like, but it tells you um, where it's made and where the money yeah. is going to. So really? It has, so on, on a normal fabric hanger that we get from a mill, it will have... Weight, price. 
Yeah, weight of the fabric, uh, composition of the fabric, price. And if it's a kind of more of a commercial fabric, the temperature in which it could be washed, if it can be washed. Um, But on the Peace & Co hangers, you have social impact. Um, Pros and cons. So as in the pros will be that it's an easy to produce fabric or the cons may be that because it's hand woven it's going to take there's a 12 week lead time for production so it's there's a real transparency on the ethics and sustainability of that particular fabric I love that you're thinking about transparency and obviously ethical production is part of your vision for how you want to make a brand that's inclusively beautiful on every stage what's your vision then for where you want to take the brand I mean, we, there's realities to having to grow that production. Um, so that would be the next stage, is looking at how we expand that and how we grow that and maintain that vision. Um, yeah, because you can do it when it's small and you know it's local, but then what happens yeah, when Yeah, you... but I think we've also... I think there's also a reality to how we've both envisaged the scale of the brand. We've never wanted to be an absolutely huge brand where we're losing touch with our team and that team being on all facets production team sampling team design team PR team um so I think naturally we will always work towards we're always going to kind of checkpoint ourselves in such a way that we'll control that Mm. and it will control it by checking it against our instinctive moral checkpoints I guess um in that we we don't feel comfortable if we haven't. A lot of the mills that we work with, we've actually visited. It's an amazing how much you can get out of a mill by going there, seeing them, shaking their hand, and it just not being about an email. And there is a real value and impact that that has. And we started that at Walmart, actually. when we, What we were asking these mills to do was to change, basically change what they did uh, and do something different to 175 yeah. years and they'd yeah. never used this lace mill in France had never put wool through their spools and through their threading machines and they were like you want us to do what and we thought okay let's get on the Eurostar let's get a car let's go to the back end of nowhere in Lyon and let's just talk to them and explain to them in person what it is we're trying to achieve and it worked it works we sat down we had lunch we explained to them told them about the competition time for lunch not 32 collections a year yeah exactly and time to have a baby and time <laughs> when are you having a baby December you're going yeah. to take some time off more um, than your two weeks off email I don't know if it will I, to be honest there's no plans it's like we'll just see kind of how it goes I'm looking forward to your baby round table yeah, yeah. that would be interesting <laughs> Getting mothers in, mothers in fact, in that's a good idea. Getting mothers in fashion round a round table and actually talking to them about it because it really has made me think about what you know. If I was to have a well, girl or a boy, what kind of world of fashion do I want them to observe? Mm-hmm. And that would be a good thing. That's You're welcome. You can have that idea. There you go. <laughs> that's <laughs> next season. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better music is by Montaigne she recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends will feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you.